Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with John Costas. John Costas is an activist, a former alcoholic, and the first study participant in the NYU psilocybin clinical trials. During our conversation, John talks about his years of alcohol abuse, his attempts to rid himself of the addiction, his doctor's belief that, in his mid-20s, his quantity of alcohol consumption would likely kill him within a few years, and his eventual experience of a medically supervised heroic dose of psilocybin, the psychoactive ingredient in magic mushrooms, at New York University. John discusses what his trip was like, how it cured him of his alcohol cravings, the efficacy rates of such treatments, and how it has motivated him to dedicate his life to help others get access to professionally supervised psychedelic experiences to address addiction and other aspects of human suffering. John is the first person on this show who was a friend before the interview. His story is an incredible one and offers hope to many who are battling severe addiction. It takes courageous people like John to step forward and share honest, open, and very personal stories to effect real change. It was an honor to do this one. I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Costas. Mr. Costas, this is a first for this show. Um, you're a friend. I've known you for years, and um, I've wanted to do this interview for pretty much ever since I met you. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks for doing this. Awesome. Well, thank you. I'm very excited about this one. So looking forward to it. Thanks, buddy. Um, maybe we can start with the background story. I'd love to give ample time to kind of learn the the story of you as a as a younger man, as a teenager and in your 20s. Um, maybe we can just start with having you shed some light on you know, your earlier years relationship to, to alcohol, um, specifically and what the, you know, what your lifestyle was like, what you were like back in the day. Uh, maybe we can just keep it open-ended to start and, and, uh, the conversation from there. Um, yeah, I mean, those, so I, I grew up in Manhattan and, this was like the early 2000s. I was born 1990. So I was going out when I was like 13, around 12, 13. Hmm. Um, and, and New York was awesome back then. I mean, it was, uh, they had just been smoking indoors under Bloomberg, but if you knew the right bars, they'd shut the windows and they'd let you smoke after midnight. Hmm. So, um, but it was, uh, it was a fun time. It was great. Uh, and that's when I started drinking and it, I mean, my, my friends and I would, you know, sneak into either bars or we'd go to restaurants that weren't doing too well, um, that weren't that busy. And <laughs> so we'd, you know, go there, order some food and order a lot more drinks. Um, and, but that's kind of how, 
how it was growing up in New York. You'd find the the places that didn't really they weren't too strict on IDs or they didn't they're more lenient. Mm-hmm. Um and and we'd gravitate towards that. But the difference is a lot like most of the, the folks I was doing this with, they could kind of turn it on and turn it off. Whereas I never understood. I loved feeling like that. I'm like, this is great. Uh, I love how alcohol made me feel. I'm like, like, why wouldn't I never got, I never understood why you would just limit it to a Friday or a Saturday night. Um, it didn't make sense. I was like, this would make class more interesting. This would make, you know, doing the laundry more interesting. I just don't understand why people aren't constantly drinking. Hmm. And it, and kind of to this day, I'm like, I, I still don't, I don't drink anymore, obviously, but it, like when I see someone just kind of, they just have like one drink and and it's been there and the ice is melted it's been there for like an hour i'm like why even order it like i still don't understand that um mm-hmm. but so i so i knew like at an early age i was i was a little different um mm-hmm. that and and i would build it up build up the tolerance because i was drinking more than everyone else um so that was noticeable too, where I would, I would drink all these, you know, amounts of alcohol and, um, and way more than my peers at the time. So, um, that was also, uh, kind of eye opening too, that I was just kind of on a fast track to crashing and burning um, if I, if I didn't do anything about it and, um, but on the other hand, I'm such a hypochondriac that I would tell my doctor and I'm like a teenager at this point, but, and I'm like brutally honest with the guy and he's like, yeah, you know, this is, I think it was my pediatrician. (laughs) (laughs) I was still seeing my pediatrician. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is, um, normal he's like you should probably have like a three-year-old toddler waiting for the next appointment to get in um and he's telling me yeah you should probably go to an aa meeting you know gave me a lollipop on the way out and um and so i checked out the aa meeting he was like just he's like check it out see if anything resonates if anything if you think this is you know relevant at all so I went to an AA meeting at 16 and, and a lot of these people that were in this particular meeting, but but I've been to hundreds of meetings over the years and it's pretty common that they all, we had similar starts um, where we'd be drinking at, we started at a young age. It's a progressive disease. So you're, and you're building up tolerance. And um, so I was like, so I'm like, I'm not, I'm not there yet with the DUI there. Cause they'd say all the, you know, I, I was drinking at 10 and then this, and then I got arrested. And then uh, a lot of them got DUIs at some point in their lives. 
thank God I didn't get my license till I was like 28 or something. Um, cause I, I didn't need it in the city, but, um, I dodged another bullet with that. Cause who wouldn't know? I mean, um, if I had a license, uh, but so a couple of those stories, I'm like, okay, this, I'm like, I, I probably will need to stop at some point, but I'm fine now. So I, I'd still, you know, I'd, I'd try to monitor it, but I, every time I drank, I would black out. So it was just tough. Um, I could never, I'd always think I'm going out for like one or two drinks and I don't know what, what, but I, I'd convince myself, I'm like, tonight's the night I'm going to only do maybe two drinks. I'll be on great behavior. And some, I mean, most of the time I'd, be fine i wouldn't but i just waking up the next morning after a blackout and i'm like oh my god what did i did i do something like terrible what did i do and then i'd have to call my friends or something just to get a peace of mind and they're like no you didn't remember any of it like you were fine i didn't know you were like blacked out you're fine other other uh instances though they were like yeah you should call you know <laughs> this person and apologize yeah um but those were few and far between so um did you i was lucky about did, that did you view the drinking at that time as a problem i yeah i thought it was a little problematic <laughs> Um, but I was still in the, so yeah, like when I saw, I mean, I was kind of, it's so it's tough because it's subjective in a way where the person with, you know, the alcoholism or the drug use or the, a, a lot of those folks are just kind of in denial or, you know, they'll, um, like when I was on and off drinking and trying to stop drinking, I would, I'd justify relapsing by, you know, I shouldn't feel that bad. I'm still young and in my early twenties. Um, I'll, you know, I'll get my act together down the road. Like I don't have kids. I don't have, you know, a wife. I'm fine. Like I could do whatever I want right, right. now. So that's how I would, I would justify that when I'd like start drinking again. Like, yeah, I'm still young. I'm fine. But yeah, I viewed it as, I, I viewed it as an issue. I viewed it as a problem, but one that kind of came with the territory because I was going to keep living that lifestyle. So I, I didn't, I didn't see it as big of a problem as, I saw it later on, like, okay, maybe, maybe it is time that I just try to give it up altogether. Um, so yeah, I was aware of it, but I think more subconsciously too, cause I was going through, like I'd be going to AA meetings throughout that whole time. I was, you know, 16 to like 24, up leading up to that clinical trial. I was going to different doctors just to figure out like how like substance use 
specialist and um so i was doing all of that i checked into rehab to try to stop so i didn't want to stop but like when i was a teenager i was like this this could be problematic but like a lot of the stuff i did was just it was kind of like everyone was having a good time too so the people I was with, like they, they kind of liked that too. Like it was entertaining. Um, like if you think I'm crazy now, you should have seen me yeah. when I was drinking. Um, but <laughs> so it, it, in a weird way, it was kind of like, uh, it wasn't that problematic. It was more rewarding in a, in a weird way. And just based on our society too, like glorifying alcohol, alcohol is, um, you know, it's like a lot of TV shows, a lot of movies, a lot of like a lot of comedy just mm-hmm. looks at that in a, in a funny way. When it's actually like, when you actually see the real side of it, it's like, breaking up families it's you know killing people it's killing others and drunk driving accidents and like other accidents like so it's you know it's interesting how our society sees alcohol and alcoholism um but i was looking at alcoholism back then as kind of like you know it's kind of funny like a you know lovable guy who's just getting way too drunk but uh he's fine all so were you waking up unfortunately were you waking up john in the morning with like i don't know how well you remember kind of the lived experience of that time in your life but like with extreme cravings from the jump when you're up in the morning for alcohol consumption um psychologically what do you remember about that time in your life of what kept pulling you back into you know the bar scene and the extreme drinking oh so that's a good question i so it was very easy for me to stop in like week or two increments Mm -hmm. anywhere from like a few days to or even like a week to maybe a couple of weeks, a few weeks, because I would just, I'd have so much remorse after going out and just getting completely hammered. And I'd wake up, I'd have a physical hangover. I'd have what my friends call mental hangover. I've heard the term anxiety, mm-hmm. like a hangover and anxiety together. That's pretty, uh, accurate um so i i would just feel you know physically and mentally i was just like oh my god like what what the hell am i doing and i just i felt like a bad person like i felt guilty i felt like i did something really bad when in reality i just drank um and and didn't even do anything bad that like it got I was just drinking by myself to kind of limit because I was always concerned. Oh man, am I going to like just, you know, lash out at someone or am I going to, and that never really happened. Mm. 
it was just in the back of my mind when I'm on autopilot and I don't know what's going on, but that was, that was one of my biggest fears. Like, am I going to just do something really like bad that I'm going to regret? Um, so I'd wake up and I'm just think running around with the worst case scenarios, but I'm like, I didn't even go. I didn't, I just drank by myself Mm. at home. I didn't do any of that. So like, I would start doing that to just limit any of those variables from, from getting into the equation. But I'd still feel, even if I knew I was just harming myself with the booze, I would still feel guilty after that. So, but then it's just like, you know, and then I'd stop for a few days or a few weeks and then I would just be bored. And then I'd be like, and then I get back to the subjective, you know, me justifying my drinking. I'd go back to, you know, I've been pretty good the last couple of days or the last few weeks. And I should, you know, I'm like, why not? And somehow I'd convince myself it would just be a couple of drinks and I'm not going to, I'm not going to drink enough to get blackout. I'll drink enough to get a good buzz going. Mm. But so, but it's, I mean, it's the same story. It's like Groundhog Day mm. with Bill Murray. So it's just like the same, same thing over and over again. And then that's, I think doing that enough times. And I, I don't think I'm alone with like other alcoholics that have tried different <laughs> Like you try all these different equations to see if you could drink normally or socially without going getting overboard. Um, and I, I pretty much did it all. Like I've heard of people switching a beer. I've heard of people drinking a glass of water in between ever. I would just be drinking more, way more water. I'd be, you know, yeah. hydrating for a marathon at that point it's not i'm not going to limit my intake of alcohol i'm just going to up my my water intake so just like all these different because a lot of us myself included just love drinking so much mm. that it was almost impossible to think of a world where you'd have to give it up forever and that's i think that's also why still a lot of people are very um most people with substance use issues don't seek help. So, and I think that's a big reason because you're telling someone they can't do the thing that they do the most and the thing that they love to do mm. um, or the thing that they're just dependent on. I don't know if they love to do it anymore or not. Probably not if they're at that point, but you're telling them you, they can never do it ever again. And some people are, I mean, I was so desperate that I was like, yeah, fine. like, yeah, I don't want to do this ever again. But a lot of people are, you know, that's kind of scary coming to terms with that. And they're like, but I kind of, I mean, you know, I can't do this every other weekend or I can't do this once a month or hmm. so. And the truth is most people can't because if they do that, then they're just back 
in that vicious cycle that that's hard to break out of again. So until for you, for, for you personally, trials, though, it, it sounds yeah. like, am I right in understanding? And if I'm not, please correct me that it was mostly, you know, a, an option for you to mitigate boredom and just the internal experience of being drunk was, or drinking, having alcohol in your system was just so much more enjoyable than sober life. Oh yeah, I loved it. I mean, it that was my favorite thing to do. I loved how it made me feel. I th- I think I was just bored, which is weird to say um, mm-hmm. because I was in a city where there's a lot going on and um. But it wasn't like no trauma or anything when I had a great childhood, great parents that were always present, great sister, um, great friends. So, but when I, I, yeah, when I had alcohol early on, I was just like, wow, this is, this is great. Um, Not, you know really not a care in the world and mm. to just hang out. Everyone's having a good time. Who wouldn't want to? It was like, I was at the Copacabana every weekend hanging out. That's how it <laughs> felt great. Do you think it so, was yeah, moving from a kind of bland, normal internal psychological life to one that, you know, like you said, was, your favorite thing to do, just not a care in the world, a much more pleasurable experience or, you know, in retrospect now, do you look back and think that you were depressed or mildly depressed or, or not? How do you make sense of that? I, I think it was more anxiety. I know there was a lot of stress growing up and I didn't, I, and I talked to this, basically a kid, um, who grew up in the city and I, I was talking to him. Um, he's in college now, so he's young. Uh, but until I, I talked to him recently, like within the last year or something. And he said just the whole school system, you know, the whole studying for the SSATs for boarding school or, you know, and then the SATs for college and like all of that. And you're in New York where it's highly competitive, where it's, you know, per capita, one of the most competitive Hmm. places in the world professionally, if not the most. And then you're getting in, you know, the kids of these people that are, High, in highly competitive environments too and you know we're just all in these schools together i mean it's it's quite the environment and it's it is tough for for a younger you know person um and i never i never really realized that and i think and i'm obviously not a doctor but I was like, I, I just remember like being sick to my stomach some days just from school. And this was 
before the drinking. Hmm. I mean, just really bad things that like you think if you fail a test, your life's over. Like you're not, then you're not getting in the best high school you want. And then you're not getting into the best college. And then if you don't get into a good college, forget, forget about, you know, living a professional life and, and you know, forget about doing well hmm. after school. I mean, so, but these were the types of things, you know, I was thinking, and and I know a lot of my friends were thinking too, of just like our lives could be over if we don't, if we yeah. don't do well in school. And I wasn't, you know, the best student, believe it or not. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I was, and then I started focusing on the partying. Mm. So that's, that kind of doubled down on the anxiety too. Um, but I think it was more that in these high pressured, I mean, you got little kids and you're putting, throwing them in these like pressure cookers. It's, it's tough. Um, but until that kid identified that as a problem. And then I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, I don't, with that too it sounds worse now it mm. didn't it didn't even sound as bad when i was um there but but i was like that i think that did have something to do with it yeah is it is it fair to say that and i can empathize with that in uh, in many ways that it was more a relief from you know the boredom slash the low level or medium level anxiety that is a part of being in a you know com consistently competitive environment when you're you're still quite young is th is that fair a fair assessment of some of the incentive or a large part of the incentive for the drinking in the first place i think so kind of like like the the stockbroker or something taking that like cliche first drink after we're like going home opening up the scotch bottle um to kind of like detach from from a stressful job and work environment i think it did i think i mean these were just like pleasant distractions as a kid like just going out and having fun with your friends to take away from the you know that life in in school and then and like even um because i love summer and then summer is like a terrible time of year in new york as you are well aware yeah but i still love it even if even though the weather is bad and i think that's just because of nostalgia and then i realized i hate the fall mm. and even though the fall weather is great that's when we were all getting back to school. Hmm. So I think that still kind of sticks with me of like, wow, I, you know, I always hated that even because you could, you know, go out at, at certain times of a year blindfolded and you'd know what season it is. Like just from not just like temperature wise, but like the smells on the street and, you know, the trees, the flowers, 
the rain. Um, so just feeling that that fall weather coming along, I'm just like, oh man, this is kind of depressing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you but know I, what's coming. You know the intensity of what's yeah. coming and, and the pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and it took me. What is I'm 33 now. I left there at 18. So, I mean, it took me some some years. And, and if I hadn't talked to this kid, I don't think I would have put it together. Um, not certainly not this soon, but uh, at all, maybe. But yeah. it's something that that you're just so used to in this, and you dealt with it too right you said you mentioned so i mean it is it's tough to put that on kids yeah i i totally agree with that i also don't think i was aware of just how tense i was (laughs) all the time and in attempting to perform which is what a lot of what high intensity middle school and especially high school becomes where like you said i definitely had this view that if you don't do well in school, if you don't get into a great college, essentially like your future prospects are, are gone. Um, and there's just this, you know, internal need to try to perform and try to hold yourself to a high standard, which is, it takes a lot of effort. And I think is difficult, especially when you're young and awkward and don't have a good sense of yourself or an accurate understanding of how, how long life really is. And, how high school is not all that it's cracked up to be in so many ways. Um, you know, you, you talked about the fact that, you know, you went to AA, I think as a teenager, how did you know, or I guess, when did you personally believe like, this is a real problem for you? Was it when you couldn't stop? Was it when, you know, you noticed a behavior shift that you were embarrassed by? When did you begin to personally accept that this is, something that's going to be a real, real, really difficult for you. Yeah. When I, when I try to like slow down and because I couldn't, I was either drinking or I was not drinking. There was no in between. And I tried to, before I try to stop drinking altogether and went that route, I obviously try to cut back and it was just, I think that was more, I don't know if I've ever really done that. Cause I would always try to say, I'm just going to stick with this number of drinks or I'll try to, but it's just tough because then you'd get, you'd have a few and then you'd have a couple. Yeah. I would have a few and I wouldn't feel anything. And then I have a few more. Wouldn't really feel much. And then I would just go from like not feeling anything to blackout drunk and like maybe one drink it felt like. Um, so it was tough. And it was, I was drinking pretty quickly too. So it wouldn't hit me mm. yet. So um, it, that, you know, trying to get a handle on it is when I realized that's, going to be an issue and i'm probably not going to be able to do this if i wanted to succeed in life and that's what i wanted to do. i wanted to find a career i loved 
I wanted to be good at it, whatever it was. And I wanted to just be successful in that way. And I cared more about that than drinking. And I knew I couldn't be productive if I were drinking. So I had to give one up. And I was like, I'm not, you know, I don't want to just waste my life away. So I got to figure this out. And I know, you know, we talked about the AA attempts and, you know, and knowing you for a, a couple of years now, I mean, my understanding is that the attempt to go into this NYU trial, which I know we'll talk about was my understanding was that it was really like a Hail Mary for you and that you yeah. had tried everything else. And I wonder if it might be helpful for people listening to this to hear what, what all you did try and why your you know, parents, and this is not that long ago, but it was, you know, for so many people, this kind of move to try a psychedelic to break an addiction just seems crazy. Um, yeah. What, what did you try before you and your family decided that this is something worth pursuing? So AA and, and hundreds, hundreds of meetings, because I did 90, they call it 90 and 90. It's mm. you do 90 meetings in not, in your first 90 days. So your first three months of AA, you do a meeting every single day. Mm. And I did that a couple of times. And so I've, I've done that. I mean, hundreds of AA meetings and, um, and then I saw all these, and I'm in New York, so best doctors, you have, you know, a full range of different outpatient clinics, specialists. I mean, you name it, it's it's all here. So I was lucky enough, you know, with that. So I saw different substance use counselors, different, you know, MDs, psychiatrists, specializing in alcoholism i you know um they would a few of them gave me prescriptions for um pharmaceuticals that would um help curb my drinking hmm. or curb my cravings for alcohol but when i took that i was like i need at least like 12 beer like i would get a full case of beer and I, I would start drinking them. And then after like the second or third one, like pretty early on, I wouldn't really want to drink it. So it was kind of working, hmm. but then like my muscle memory or whatever it was, I was like, no, but I need like X amount to, to really get a buzz going. So I would like force, I would force these drinks. So that didn't work at least for me and um there was another pill prescription that they gave me which you would take and you take it like once a week or something but it would make you sick if you ingested any alcohol mm. so you'd like break out in rashes and like violently throw up like i've heard terrible stories about it so i've never i never drank on it but it never did any it, it never addressed your cravings so it's like putting a chocolate cake in front of a diabetic telling them 
don't eat it mm. um or you're gonna get sick yeah so you know that and um and obviously rehab i did inpatient and outpatient so really ev- like everything we exhausted all of our options um and tried everything available and i was lucky enough to have great parents that were supportive and you know trying to get me the best care that that was around so um but still even with that these treatments they didn't work for me and then what i realized is okay i could be i was treatment resistant but is what what i was categorized as but so so are most people Mm. looking for help if treatment works for like five ten percent of people the other 90 percent are treatment resistant i guess or or Mm. you just have a terrible method Mm. and we don't we need more solutions that that maybe work for the majority of folks seeking help and just Um, just to clarify on on some of that so despite all of the the work, despite all of the resources that you had had and the time you'd put into going out to all these meetings and everything else you just mentioned, the cravings, if I'm understanding correctly, never subsided, nor did the drinking subside. And if that is correct, I'd love to hear about you know where you were before this NYU trial, you know, just the trajectory of where you think your your life was headed at that point, if, you know, if not for that trial, where, where do you think you would have ended up based upon a lot of the details that you just spoke about? Oh, well, I mean, according to the doctors, I'd be dead if I, if I kept drinking the way I was drinking. Uh, um, at this point in my life, yeah, it, it never, and I think that was the most, um, frustrating part of it's the cravings that and these temptations that you just can't you can't overcome uh and they're just driving you nuts and that's all you're thinking about all day um and and that's really tough because it like there'd be days where I wouldn't drink, but I thought about drinking and it was really tough not to drink, but that just keeps beating you down and it wears on you over time. And it doesn't take that long for a lot of people. It didn't Mm -hmm. for me. And it's just wearing you down. And, um, and I, and, and the weird thing is I'm, I'm pretty like disciplined and I have pretty good willpower in everything else. Mm. Like if I if I know I need to do something, I'll focus on that, and and I'm good at, at addressing things and and seeing things through. But with this, it was just, you know, will willpower is uh is not really the skill that that you need to overcome this stuff for I think for most people. Um, so. There are people I've heard of that just stopped cold turkey and never again. 
and that's great. Um, but I do think that that's not that's the minority of of folks seeking help or treatment. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't looking good. Yeah, the doctors. I would, I would drink 20 to 30 drinks. I mean, when I enrolled in that clinical trial and I try to cut back the drinking, so I would, cause then work picked up too at this time. So I was doing well at work and I was afraid that, you know, I didn't want it interfering with work and thank God I was in my mid twenties when, when I stopped, I was still young, 25. So I got lucky there. Um, and, uh, so I was trying to kind of plan out my drinking better because I couldn't really cut back the drinking. Um, but I could space out the days between drinks. That was Mm -hmm. easier for me to do. So if I knew, and I would look at my calendar and I'd see what three-day weekends are coming up because it would take me – I wouldn't just be hungover for a day. I would – this was a – I'd get, you know, pretty beat up from drinking that it would take me a day or two to to recover. Um, so I would I would really need – I could just go out on a Friday and then come and um, work on a Monday like – totally fine i'd i'd need that extra day to really dry out or you know find god or something um and just just to clarify something that you mentioned a a minute or two ago am i right that it was 20 to 30 drinks a day that you were consuming primarily cocktails if i remember correctly yeah yeah um so it was, and then, and I was looking at the, the, my sheet that I filled out and it was, I think it was 23 drinks that I was averaging when I enrolled in that trial. And so I was like spacing that out. And that was like me working and like calm down and, and not John, that, to, that's, I wasn't, a, that's that's an average of 23 drinks per day spread out yeah. over time yeah so like in any given time that i was drinking that's what i would consume so they i don't know how they i think i needed to count my drinks up right i kept track of mm-hmm. what i would drink when i enrolled in the clinical trial and um but i was trying to be on good behavior so that was like lower than it was 22.7 um <laughs> what, what what i averaged um and so it was like me trying to i'm like okay i'm doing this clinical trial I'll get you know i'm feeling healthy i'm getting my my act together um so yeah, it was a lot. And I think it was in the 95th or 97th percentile for alcohol consumption. Um, so that they were, they were like, good thing you're young because 
no, they did blood work and everything. And, and I'm like, great, I'm going to die or something. But cause they were looking if anything was, you know, any, any, um, long-term impact health, uh, impacts that, you know, from all this drinking, but I was so young that, and I hadn't been, I mean, that's decades and decades and decades of drinking like, you know, that or so it's uh i got lucky there that there wasn't any anything physically um wrong from the or any damage no uh short-term or long-term physically so you said you said that very likely you if if not for this experience that we're going to talk about you would be dead and you know what 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 was the major risk for you if you would have continued is it organ failure is it cognitive decline is it all of the above what what likely would have eventually killed you if you would have continued at that pace yeah so the doctors were concerned about organ failure i think um i know they were concerned and I don't want to put words in in their mouth, but they were they were concerned about that. Um, I know they were also concerned about seizures. Hmm. Not all, you know, seizures aren't. They can be deadly for sure. They're, I mean, if you can avoid them, that's the best thing to do. Um, but they were concerned that because I would drink so much and then just stop that that would be an issue. I'd have a seizure and you know, that would not be uh good, but I think it was internal bleeding too was another one I heard. Um, but they were just like flat out. This is, they listed a bunch of things and their end. And I was getting, um, DTs occasionally delirium tremors is what they call them. Uh, so the DTs and I remember that the doctor told me is like, I get these with my like 40 year old patients that have been like, those guys are young and I'm concerned about them. And they've been drinking for decades. So he was like, you were the youngest person I've seen getting, getting these. And this is like multiple addiction um, specialists mm-hmm. saying that I was just on a, I was just drinking way too much in a, you know, short amount of time. And there was no way it was going to be sustainable. Um, so they were they were just concerned. What is a delirium tremor? It's so the side effect. So it's with withdrawal of mm. alcohol, and y- you know you could have hallucinations. You could see things kind of like flashing. Um, a big thing is shaking, and so like the shakes. Yeah, that's and that, and I was getting that. And I was just like, 
I'm like, this is not, and I would need to drink in the morning to calm my nerves. And, um, not all the time, just like if it was really bad, um, like if I woke up with like a terrible hangover and I'm shaking that, I mean, that's really the only way to stop it that I know of, or, um, the, uh, the different benzodiazepines, I think that, that type of drug that, um, you know, they'll, they'll give it to you to kind of wean off the drinking so you don't get a seizure, but then those are highly addictive mm. in themselves. Um, so, or can be, um, so it's, you know, it's a slippery slope, but I remember, you know, sometimes they would have to write me a prescription of just a few pills, not like a whole pill, a whole pill bottle of 90 or whatever it is. They would give me like two or three to kind of wean me off that hangover. Mm. Um, so that's, I mean, that was not fun and it was just awful. And you're like dry heaving, you're throwing up bile, like everything's out of your system. I mean, it's, it's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the trial itself. And I'd love to hear from you about what you remember about, um, its existence, who told you what your thoughts were, you know, in preparation for this, I watched other interviews that you've given and I know that you were terrified of psychedelics or at least had had no experience yeah. with them were scared of their you know potential bad trips or bad experiences on them what do you remember about who brought this idea to you in the first place um and how that unfolded where you actually ended up enrolling yeah no great great question can i smoke in here please <laughs> um great question and yeah no i was terrified and it was a lot of that was um, a kid that I knew, grew up in the city, really bright kid, one of the smartest kids, great athlete, um, got along with everyone. Uh, he unfortunately passed away. Hmm. And the, I don't know if the, like the rumor, just the story going around was that he was on mushrooms, magic mushrooms, hmm. and he walked out of his window and fell to his death unfortunately so that terrified me um i've also had experiences when friends would call me to come for me to go pick them up because they were having a bad trip Mm. and i'm like these guys sound off i'm i'm like why would anyone I never understood it and I still kind of don't of people doing this recreationally. If there's like a tiny percent, a small chance of them having a, a, you know, hell realm, terrible, frightening experience. I'm like, even if the 99% uh, of the times that you do do this drug are great, that 1% risk is just too much for me. 
Hmm. Um, so I never, I was always afraid of it. I had no idea what I was getting into, but at the time we were just totally out of options. And my parents were like, I don't know. And my parents are, are pretty against my, my mom would always like scare. She's like, don't, you know, don't do any drugs. There's like heroin in the pot now, or like angel dust. Angel dust was a big thing when we were growing up. Those, those were on the commercials. And then, the, and then she'd go to the Halloween candy. We'd go trick or treating. Like there's, I mean, if fentanyl were prevalent back then, forget it. She'd, they wouldn't let us leave the house maybe. But so she was always like telling us not to do drugs or like just, scare like don't do it don't and you know that, that she was she was right um but uh so she ran she switched her doctors this doctor from nyu lisa durso um was great and she i guess my mom told her like the stress she was dealing with with me like they were worried about me so then Dr. Durso, I think, stumbled upon this clinical trial that NYU, because she was an NYU doctor, um, that Steve Ross and Dr. Uh, or Dr. Ross and Dr. Bogenschutz um, were getting ready to launch. So um, I tracked down Steve Ross. They weren't recruiting participants yet. So I saw him a bit like in his private practice. And he was one of the best, if not the best guy I saw in a private practice. I mean, he was really good. He was, um, I never felt like whenever I would slip up, he, he never made me feel guilty about it. It was kind of like, okay, well, let's delve into it. What do you think happened? How do you think we prevent this, you know, hmm. from, you know, going forward and like what? So he, he was really good. Um, and then they started recruiting for patients. And I'm like, I got it. I'm like, can we do this? Or, and I think he was a little hesitant because I was so young. I was the youngest person, I think, in that trial. The cutoff age was 25. Or you had to be 25 to enter. And I was 25. So I was just, I, so I got lucky there by making it. Um, and, and John, not to cut you up, but when you say it, what what did you know about the trial? What are the details that you knew uh, knew about related to the trial itself? All I knew is that it was psilocybin, and I'd never heard of psilocybin. And then you look into it, and it's one of the compounds in psychedelic mushrooms. So then I'm like, okay. Um, it so that that's all I knew. And I it thought, was for it was for addiction, right? Specifically, was it for alcohol or other addictions? No, it was for al- alcohol. Hmm. So, and they call it alcohol use disorder, hmm. um, which is alcoholism. Um, so, I, I knew it was psilocybin. We none of us knew what psilocybin was, and then we looked it up, and we're like, okay, but. I mean, it's, you're not breaking any laws. You're doing it with a top tier research team and medical team at NYU Langone. 
So that wasn't, that was, I was like, yeah, I was worried about doing this, but I was out of all other options. And it was with a great medical team of real people that I trusted, not some, you know, wacky people trying to feed me drugs in a dark alley. Mm. Um, And it was great that, it was in a hospital setting. I'm like, great. Okay. If anything goes wrong, I'm in a hospital. And so I felt, I'm like, okay, great. I mean, it was still nerve wracking, like going into it, but I mean, I knew the alternative was just, I, I was so frustrated and just tired and beat down from like, from trying to manage the, alcohol and figuring out ways to like that i was just i'm like i'm either gonna kill it or it's gonna kill me Mm. so what's it gonna be so i tried this and and i went in like head for i'm like i'm not gonna regret this it was like it was scary but i'm like i need to try if i don't try this i'm out of options do you now my understanding about the trial it was a double blind trial so you don't know Right. It's essentially a 50 50 coin flip whether or not you're going to actually yeah. get the, the psilocybin in your session. Yeah. Um, you know, prior to enrolling this, were you bordering on hopelessness? I mean, were you viewing yourself essentially as a broken man who likely would be dead if some act intervened or some therapy? intervene that allowed you to persevere how was your psychology at that time it i mean it it depends what day you caught me on there would be yep. days where i'm like yeah i'm gonna be fine i'll do this but then there were just days that i was that i'd be afraid of my future self of i'm like okay i know i didn't drink today but i have no clue what i'm gonna do tomorrow or next week or and then I'm thinking about like, what if I have a wife and kids and then I just like slip up and like things like that. So I was just, and I guess it was kind of like the the whole school, the stress with school and stuff too, of like, this sucks, but it's life like mm. that. Like I'm going to have to deal with this and I'm going to have to live with this forever. So I always pictured alcohol like that, like, okay, I'm always going to have to deal with this. I'm going to have to deal with these cravings when they pop up occasionally. But I'll manage. I'll figure it out. And So I was I was confident that I could do it. And then, like, some days I would just really second-guess if, like, this is going to be a, you know, roll of the dice. Um, mm. I, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen but it's not you know it's it's a pretty unsettling feeling um knowing that you could just have you know one relapse and your whole life's over and everything you've worked for so because i've heard of those stories a lot especially in aa and it's like the guys that you know we're in their 50s or 60s and with like a lot a lot more to lose um families careers that have been established and so just hearing that i'm i'm like this is frightening Mm. 
So tell me about that day when you went in there and you know the setting. I, I think for many people who listen to this, this will be the first the time they've heard about uh you know this kind of therapy. And I'd love for you, you know, to give you an opportunity to talk about what you remember about the the set, the setting, the experience itself. What do you remember about about doing it? So it was they did this in Bellevue Hospital. And Bellevue's kind of got that um it's like an old New York hospital. I think they had, you know, a lot of mental uh disorders their patients with like a lot of mental disorders like um so a lot a lot going on in that hospital um and the room itself in within the hospital the doctors made it uh they had like a couch they had some paintings up some like flower pots so they kind of they wanted to give it more of a comfortable feel, not like a. But I'm, and I mentioned this earlier. I'm a hypochondriac, so like <laughs> a sterile, white walls, like hospital settings, very comfortable for me. Hmm. I I would have thrived in that environment, <laughs> but they they kind of try to make it look almost like a living room. Hmm. Um. So, but, but the majority of this treatment is psychotherapy. So they're doing, but it's two on one. So it's like two, it's an empty psychiatrist. And then usually either a PhD or a social worker, a licensed social worker or something, a therapist. So you'll have two you know, basically two therapists to one patient. Um, and the majority of this is psychotherapy. So I, I went in for like a, over a month on a weekly basis doing these talk therapy sessions with them. And it wasn't anything new. It was kind of just like, you know, talking about the drinking, talking about what changes I want to make, talking about, you know, all that and trying to figure out how to resolve this issue. Um, and then just one of these sessions is an all day, you know, they block it out from like eight in the morning to four or 5 PM. And it's what they call the medication session. So you do your, you know, medication session, you do it in the morning and you're basically should I run back to play it back to like walk you through that specific day of the medication session? Because I think that's what people are probably most curious about. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Um, so you, so I had three of these sessions over the course of the year long clinical trial. So, but they're all pretty much the same. You walk in, they drug test you. They want to make sure nothing's in your system. Um, they do. They ask you not to drink. I think it was 11 days. They asked me, don't drink 11 days prior to the medication session. So I literally looked at the calendar 
and then counted backwards 11 days and circled that date. And I'm like, this is the last night I'm going to get bombed. Hmm. And it happened to be my sister's birthday too. I didn't see that. I just drank alone. Um, and it was great. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was one of the more enjoyable times. It was a great send off. I mean, I really couldn't have written it up any better. Um, and it was one of the, one of the times that the recent, like towards the end of my drinking career, um, it wasn't, I didn't get that much anxiety after regret or, or guilt. Um, so it was interesting and it was maybe because I knew that I was going to go into this first session and I'm like, listen, it, you know, if it works great, if not, well, I'm out of options, but so I think maybe cause that was in the back of my mind. So I didn't drink 11 days prior and then they, you go in, they drug test you and then they ask you, you know, to state out loud what do you want to get out of this so state your intention and i said i knew i was there for my drinking but i'm like i think it's like deeper than than that i don't know why i'm because when i'm not drinking i was just miserable and then when i was drinking i didn't want to be drinking and i was miserable when i was drinking that wasn't fun anymore so those were the only two worlds that i knew and and so my intention was, I was just, I got to get inner peace. I got to find an inner peace, calm down. And, and I, and that ended up working. So I took the, so then they give you the pill. So it's psilocybin, synthetic, so it's pharmaceutical grade psilocybin. I've never mm. taken mushrooms. Mm. This isn't ground up mushrooms in a pill this is pharmaceutical grade pure psilocybin so and this is what they call a heroic dose so it's a high i think it's double a recreational dose um so i took that and then like 30 minutes later laid down on the couch put the blindfold on put headphones on with like classical music and kind of just laid down on the couch waiting waiting for this to kick in and then it and then i started noticing because of the blind the eye mask my biggest concern was am i not going to be able to differentiate reality and you know what's going on with these hallucinations popping up and i thought my my biggest fear was like I'm just going to see these like demonic things that are just popping up. And I think they're real life and I'm not going to, you know, what am I going to do? Um, and, and like, and I think Bogan shoots was like, yeah, that's a possibility. That could, And I'm like, what the, <laughs> but I'm like, okay. Um, so, that that was my concern, but I think because I had the eye mask on, I wasn't. I thought it would be a lot more of a visual uh, experience, but it, it wasn't as 
visual as I had anticipated. It was more the best way I could describe it. And before, like when I asked how the cancer patients did, because they did a study with cancer patients with end of life uh, anxiety. Um, and I asked, you know, what they thought. And the doctors were, they said, you know, some of them face some challenging stuff and others, you know, they're, they're basically ups and downs for a lot of that, if not all. So, um, so I just, I gave it a, a whirl and, um, I was, I had the eye mask on and then I started realizing there were these, um, it was like looking through a kaleidoscope almost, but it didn't really, I thought it would hit me like a bag of, like a, you know, ton of bricks that, okay, now I'm under the influence of psychedelics, but it didn't, it kind of crept in slowly. So I started seeing these kaleidoscopic, is that a word? Shapes. Um, and then it, it kind of started like over time started getting, uh, stronger and the effects started amplifying. And I realized that, and, and also what the doctor said was that those cancer, a lot of them couldn't really describe what they went through. Because what they called it as explaining the ineffable, like you can't, you can't explain it. You don't know, you don't have any context. You don't, there are no words to describe these experiences. And I was a journalist at the time. So I thought that was one of the dumbest things I've heard that you go through something for, you're living through something firsthand. You go through this experience and you can't put it into words and yeah, you know, I I just I didn't buy it um until I went through it and it's a thing. Um and I think it is because we don't have, you know, the proper context for it and there just aren't there there probably just aren't words in the English language that can define what you're going through during these states. Um and so that it, what this did was it really amplified emotions. That's the mm-hmm. best way I could describe it too. Like if you're happy or ecstatic, if you're, you know, sad or scared, that really exacerbates those emotions and feelings. Um, it's, it's like a, you know, roller coaster on steroids of just the ups and downs. And and I did have a couple of visuals, obviously, like what I told you earlier, um, when I, I, I was in the desert in one of these instances and there was a glass, uh, liquor bottle in the desert. And then all of a sudden the liquor bottle disintegrated into the sand. And I just thought that was, I, I thought it was corny cliche. I'm like, I couldn't have thought of like a, a more clever thing in my subconscious like i i was embarrassed about that um and i didn't want to tell the doctors i'm like they don't need to know about this <laughs> um 
but I, I mean, at that point, I thought I was like, okay, I think this is my alcoholism leaving me. Um, and I just, I hadn't drank since that first session. Um, and then the second session, similar setup where you go in, you get drug tested, then you state your intention. I don't know if I had the same intention or not. I don't think I did because it, by that point, I'm pr- I was pretty certain I wasn't going to drink again. Hmm. And I remember going into the doctor's office the day after and telling them, if I left this clinical trial and just didn't show up and never saw you guys ever again and didn't do these last two sessions, I think there's a very good chance that I don't drink again. Hmm. And But I obviously finished the clinical trial. Um, the second session, the big thing there was a death experience. I had like a wacky death experience. It was very strange, but ironically, it was the most peaceful part out of all of these um, three sessions combined. That was like, I just kind of felt, I don't know, it, it could have been just like, killing off the past or like the things I, you know, I wanted to change and and stop doing Hmm. and kind of starting a clean slate. And then I told the doc the next day. So you go in the next day, or at least I did to tell the doctors what you saw, what you experienced, what you think it all means. Um, And then they speak with you about it, what, you know, um, and I remember telling them this isn't, it's not real. It's not even like a new chapter. It's, this is like a new, a totally new book. Hmm. It's just totally different. And so like the new beginnings of like that and the new trajectory that I had in life it wasn't even just like a new chapter it was like no that book is done this is a new a totally different book that we're we're starting um and that was the best way i could describe it of and i and i think that is true i mean i'm still the same guy like when i see and some of my friends didn't know i was going through this and even though i'm convinced i told them and Mm. they just didn't realize it but but there have been guys that I've seen since after the clinical trial and they didn't even realize I stopped drinking because like, because I haven't changed. And that's what I was worried about. I was worried that, am I going to go crazy? Am I going to lose my sense of humor? Am I going to be antisocial? Am I going to, and I had all these concerns that I was going to, I thought I was walking into lobotomy. Mm. I thought that I didn't know what psychedelics did to your brain. Um, so I had concerns. Uh, but it didn't, it's crazy. It was, that's pretty much the only thing that it, it, it addressed and it took care of. It was the urge to drink. And so I, since then this was back in 2015 i haven't had an urge to drink no cravings i know i'm not going to drink um i've had i've picked up the wrong drink multiple times over the years and have 
drank alcohol, like had a sip and it did nothing for me. Whereas in the past, before this, if I had done that, I probably would have justified that with, uh, I just relapsed and I, I probably would have used that as, as an excuse to start drinking again. So it's really remarkable that, and I went for, this was my favorite thing to do, even though it was my least favorite thing to do as well, because it was destroying my life. But it was the thing I was just dependent on. I just wanted to keep doing it and figure out how to make it work. And it just took that away. Um, that, that kind of magnetic pull that it had over me. Um, and I'm still in New York, so I'm walking by, you know, three liquor stores and two bars every block mm. and, and it doesn't not once cross my mind. And my wife is, she's a social drinker. So sometimes people will give us wine and stuff and she'll, and she doesn't drink that much. So if she opens a bottle of wine, it's in the fridge forever. So, and then she'll travel for work or something. Um, or a wedding that she has to go to that I got out of and it'll just you know be a bottle of wine in the fridge and that I mean in the past that'll just that would have been torture um but it's it's crazy how how this clinical trial changed my perspective on on alcohol um to where I'm just totally indifferent about it. You used the word ineffable earlier in the lack of the words in the English language that can describe that experience. And, you know, I know how involved you've gotten in this research and in the, this advocacy work since that experience that you had, but as best you understand it, as best you can explain it, how do you make sense of what happened to you to many people who hear these stories? This seems like magic. And I'd love to hear your response to what you think happened as best you understand it. So that's another, so that's a great question. And that, and, and I had linked up with the doctors a couple of years after I had last seen them and left the clinical trial. and. I went up to them and I wanted to ask them how, what they thought happened. Like, how do they think this worked? Cause it worked and it, I, this surpassed my greatest expectations. I thought the best outcome for me after this clinical trial was that it was going to help me manage my cravings, but I didn't, not in a million years would I think that it would totally eliminate all the cravings to a point where I mean, it's like I never had an issue with alcohol. That's crazy, um, and and no urge to to drink now. So, but before I could ask them that, they asked me, "Hey, how do you how do you think this worked?" And I'm like, "Yeah, you're the doctor." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "You're the guy. You're doing the research." Um, but I think so. What it did for me was. It also, right, with magnifying and amplifying these emotions, 
So it was, it was a lot, kind of, kind of a guilt trip too with the shame. I felt terrible what this was doing to my parents. And that was the first time I had really understood what they were going through trying to get me help because the whole time I was drinking, I thought I was just hurting myself. Mm. No one else is drinking. I'm, I'm doing this to my own body. I'm not getting behind a wheel of a car or anything. I'm literally just physically harming myself. And I was, you know, anyone getting any physical harm from the drinking, it was me, but, um, but I didn't know that they were, and they were probably suffering more than I was because they were just watching this helpless and with like sober eyes, just seeing this crystal clear and the ending didn't look good. It was like a slow motion car crash that they couldn't do anything about. So seeing that coming to that realization in these sessions was probably enough for me to just say what are you doing like you got uh, you're so lucky to have the best parents the best family the greatest friends it's like what are you doing you got everything going for you don't mess this up um and enjoy and a lot of people you know talk about gratitude and stuff that definitely helped me focus and okay this is i mean wow and i thought i had problems like no way like i have a great life i need to get my act together i don't um i need to be thankful for all these things that i have uh so it was, I think how it worked was it just, it gave me a perspective shift. So that's why it didn't change my personality. It didn't change, you know, my sense of humor. It didn't change anything like that, but it did change my relationship with alcohol. And that's because I think it shifted my perspective on, you know, basically we know what road. If we go down this road, we know what the outcome is going to be, mm. and it's it's not worth it in a million years. So, just to realize that, it's almost like you know, picking up Drano and just drinking that. I might as well do that, mm. um, and I wouldn't want to do that. So, so it's not like I'm anti-alcohol. I'm not a prohibitionist. Um, it's, I just, it's not on my radar anymore. And that's why it's, um, and it's just still remarkable. Like thinking about this, whatever, however many years later, um, how well this worked and the sustaining results from this as well. And I think it got better over time, which is a weird thing because, Hmm medication usually wears off over time um and and then and just like the other possibilities what else i mean the the research is so young that who who knows what else is out there um 
and and what else this could help treat. So, I mean, we're pretty sure this works for substance use. So I'm convinced this would help with the opioid epidemic. Um, But I mean, it's, it's way bigger than just substance use and alcohol. And I mean, it could help a lot more people with different mental and behavioral health disorders of my view. I think this is how we got connected in the first place and became friends is, is we share that view that this, you know, for so many people who are at the end of their rope and are really suffering and qualify for this sort of medically supervised intervention and therapy, it could be the best thing that they've ever done for themselves, for their health, for their families, for everyone. And do you use the word or think that the word cured is accurate for you personally? Yeah, for me personally, but I do, I mean, like that's the whole thing with, for me, I was the best outcome coming out of this. Took away all my cravings, worked the very first time. I haven't touched a drink since. I haven't touched psilocybin or psychedelics since. I haven't wanted to go back and score them off the street. So this worked. I went in there, did this a few times, and I was done. So, yeah, for me, it was a cure because if this isn't a cure, I I don't know what else would be or how else you would explain a cure. Um, and a lot, and I don't say that lightly because a lot of people are, you know, especially in the world of substance use not just alcohol use disorder but but substance use broadly um it's a disease that people look at it and i did too and i probably still would if i didn't go through this firsthand but it's a disease that people view it with that 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 person living with it has to live with it for the rest of their lives and they need to manage it so they need to go to meetings so they need to you know just be on top of of that and that is that's like a full-time job in itself i mean it's tiring and it's a it's really tough i mean you could i i almost explain it well, you're a pitcher pitching a perfect game and you're in the bottom of the ninth two outs or top of the ninth if perfect game and you're winning um top of the ninth two outs you just need one more out and you give up the hit and i mean is that whole game really spoiled Hmm. is you know even though you get the win but that's kind of how a lot of folks look at sobriety of this guy had 15 years this guy had you know 10 years 20 years but he relapsed and all that's down the drain and he's got to go back to counting days and start over again. I'm like, what, like what kind of world is this when this is our, you know, this is what we're dealing with. Um, and we don't have better options. And, and we look at that as a failure. Um, and, and it's definitely an unfortunate event when that does happen, but, that's the frustration it's like constantly having to go undefeated or pitching perfect games or pit like 
constantly every day for the rest of your life and it's grueling and it's you know very tiring and um and i think that's why it it just doesn't work for the vast majority of people because it's just it's not sustainable yeah yeah john i would love to do another interview about your advocacy work and all of the incredible work which we haven't even touched on in the future to go into the details of apollo pact and the caucus at the federal level that i know you're deeply involved with with your mother-in-law whenever you want i would love to do that i i want to say there there are a couple other things i'd love to ask you but i I mean i I personally i would love to just um, you know, tell you, I mean, one of the things I've always admired about you is your openness in sharing so candidly your own story, because I feel like I know just from being friends with you that this hasn't always been the easiest thing to, to do and to go on 60 minutes and talk to Anderson Cooper and to know that everyone who ever meets you or many of them will know what you've been through. But that in my mind, that kind of courage is how people, learn and realize that they're not alone and realize that there might be hope for them. And I just want to commend you for that because I, I've always really respected, um, how you've handled yourself with that publicly since, you know, since everything that, that you went through. And, you know, I, I would love to maybe close with a couple things that we could touch on. I mean, one is for people that are listening to this potentially that are where you were, in 2014 or 2015 or whenever it was, um, you know, I'd love to give you an opportunity to to talk to those people directly and maybe speak first about what you know about the efficacy rates, the success rates of these sort of medically supervised clinical trials for psilocybin, and then also anything else you might, you know, convey to them um, to try to give them reason for hope and you know. I think we're we're both interested in this fundamentally from a position of ru- wanting to reduce suffering, unnecessary suffering, and give try to help people have better lives. Um, that's a mouthful. I'll leave it there to give you, um, you know, any commentary no, you might have on that. Yeah, and um, well, first of all, right back at you. Uh, you're one of the smartest guys I know, and very admirable that you're, I mean, you're just constantly striving to improve yourself and learn new things. And you have a, you know, curious mind and you're always trying to improve yourself on a daily basis. And that's something I admire about you. Um, so on the other hand, with these, you know, the folks out there, your other question, um, they can reach out to me directly. And I'm, I mean, that's a big part of what I do. Um, the efficacy from these trials range from 60% to 80%. So whether it's, uh, psilocybin assisted therapy for anxiety, psilocybin assisted therapy for major depressive disorder. Um, psilocybin for substance use. Um, I know, so they've done this for cocaine use disorder at uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham, um, UAB, Mm -hmm. with uh, Peter Hendricks down there. He's great. And um, 
they're doing another trial for smoking cessation. So this works for, you know, cigarette smoking um, addiction. And that's in itself is very difficult to quit. And the efficacy there was about 80%, I think. And the leading method right now is about 30%. So it's mm-hmm. more than double. Um, granted, small sample size and, you know, still in research phase, but still very exciting. And they're they're doing those clinical trials that just got an NIH grant, so government funded. So that's huge that the government is starting to fund this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, alcohol use, they that was the one I was in. They're doing this at the University of Wisconsin for opiates, for methamphetamine use disorder. So they're really, you know, um, getting these trials going. But I uh, don't, you know, for people struggling, don't give up. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Just try to, I mean, and I don't, I'm never pushing this or preaching with you know that everyone should do this and you know go through down this road but if they are out of options if you are out of options if you've tried everything if you you know you have nothing else to um no other methods no other um treatments that that you can explore I would certainly, you have nothing to lose. I would certainly explore looking at clinical trials. You could go to clinicaltrials.gov and search all of the clinical trials there. You could go to apollopact.org and reach out to me directly, and I will walk you through how to get to those clinical trials. But it is certainly worth exploring, and it, was, it is certainly working worth talking to anyone on those medical teams and clinical teams that are conducting these clinical trials to learn more from them. Those are real doctors. They're real clinicians. They're properly trained medical professionals. They're doing FDA clinical trials. I mean, that's the best way to do it. So you got nothing else to lose. Hmm. Maybe my last question, John, will be um, go for two, it twofold. One, um, and I'll I'll include this in the notes of the the episode. But what is the best way for them to reach you personally? And second, I, I just leave it open ended for anything else that we haven't covered that you wish we would have to speak on any subject related to this entire journey you've been on and the knowledge you now have. Uh, if anything comes to mind, I, I you're welcome to speak on anything that you think is worthy of, of uh, a final comment. Yeah. The, you know, I did this in a clinical setting, <laughs> so I don't want to give people the false um, notion that, that, you know, you, you could just do this by yourself and it'll be risk-free. Um, you should be doing this with a medical team there. Clinical trials are the best route to go, in my opinion. I think they're the safest. Um, and what was your was your first question? The contact, yeah. Or um, they could 
email me at hello at apollo pact p-a-c-t dot org um and or just go to the site and fill out one of those um forms there if, if you're looking for a trial too uh but i'm fairly easy to get a hold of and I'm, i try to be as easy as possible to um to do that because i've been you know in a lot of situations where i needed help myself and wanted to get to people and figure out you know how do i learn more about uh you know bettering myself so uh i try to be it shouldn't be difficult to find me if you go to apollopack.org John, that is an absolutely amazing story. Uh, I mean, I think you will, you've already done, but will do incredible work with your career in, in this entire field. I mean, I think I probably speak for everyone who knows you that I'm, I mean, I'm glad that the addiction has been kicked obviously. And again, just mad respect for what you've, you've done (laughs) with everything afterwards. I think it's, it's extreme to me. That's one of the best things you know, I would never wish suffering upon anyone, but if you're able to figure out a way to break it, you can teach other people or give, be a guidepost for others. And that's exactly what you're doing, man. So I just want to say thank you again for doing this. I've wanted to record this story since I heard it, you know, a couple of years ago. So thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you. Um, it's always great catching up and hope, hopefully I'll see you soon. Maybe next week out there. That'd be great. Thanks, buddy. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.